Welcome to Frank Warren's Heavyweight Podcast. I'm Adam Catterall, and once again, thank you so much for coming to join us. If this is the first time you've ever come across this particular podcast, you know you can subscribe via iTunes, and if you need an Android feed, you can get it via Acast. We're on Spotify as well and various other applications, so just type in Frank Warren's Heavyweight Podcast and we surely should pop up. If, as well as that, you wouldn't mind writing us a little review, it helps us with our visibility in the iTunes charts. Now, Time to get stuck in to another heavyweight guest. They keep coming thick and fast. And this time, we're going back to the world of politics. We're going to be speaking to the man that was the Downing Street press secretary uh, after a successful campaign with Tony Blair in the mid to late 1990s. He's a Burnley fan. Don't hold that against him. I'm allowed to say that with me being a Blackburn Rovers fan. So there could be a few fisticuffs on this particular heavyweight podcast as we go toe-to-toe with Alistair Campbell. This podcast was recorded before current Prime Minister Boris Johnson was admitted to hospital. Right, Frank, once again, you have treated us to a heavyweight... Uh, guest on the podcast, Mr. Alistair Campbell. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm fine, Adam. How are you? I'm very well indeed. Um, Frank, I, I'm, I'm sure you're fully aware of this uh, with our previous guests that you've had on that are uh, big Arsenal fans. You will know full well that Mr. Campbell is a Burnley fan. You know full well that I'm a Blackburn fan. Why have you done this? Are you, are you looking for a fight? Is this what you're doing? <laughs> I think he's a closet Arsenal fan. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know the um, you know the you know the, the social distancing rules, don't you? It's two meters for everybody. If it's a Blackburn fan, it's ten meters. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good job that we're doing this over the internet. Then yeah, we're we're lucky. <laughs> Alistair, how are you dealing with everything at the moment? Because obviously it's unprecedented times. We've never come across this before. How is it affecting you uh, with, with your day to day life? How, how are you coping? So yeah, get up get up really early. Uh, write for a couple of hours. Then Fiona and I go out with the dog for about an hour and a half. Uh, back. And then I'm, I'm literally just in all day and I'm quite enjoying it. I'm doing different things. A lot of the work that I do is gone. A lot of my work is public speaking. Yeah. It's one-to-one consultancy. But I'm finding what I'm doing is I've got more time to write, which I quite enjoy. And I'm writing lots of different blogs and articles and stuff. And also you can still do some of the consultancy stuff and some of the, some of the advice stuff. And then of course the other thing I'm doing is I'm following, I'm following what's going on and, and trying to, you know, from the outside sort of, you know, at least commentate on it and try to kind of influence some of the people who are involved in it. Mm. So, you know, I'm keeping very busy. And then, um, I mean, I'm lucky in that I actually like being with my partner. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this, the other thing that I found is um. I'm sort of, and it is really interesting how I've, one of my maybe this is because I'm a depressive. But I, whenever really bad stuff happens, I always try to think about something good that could come out of it. Yeah. And I found that, for example, you know, going for a walk in the morning and noticing—I mean, this is terrible for the aviation industry. I get that, but noticing there are no planes in the sky and yeah. feeling the air cleaner and my asthma better and the bird song clearer. And then things like, you know, just just stuff you don't normally do that you suddenly think, oh, I could do that and I'll go and do that. And whether that's kind of, you know, big things like I've just written a novel or it's little things like, you know, 
the cleaner's not here, I better tidy my own office up. <laughs> <laughs> Is that pretty much the same for you, Frank? Yeah, well, I mean, I've just, I've just written a note to the milkman. That's my lot. I mean, I'm, I'm, not in that, I'm not in that league. That's about it. I'll, I'll tell you no, what Frank right. does. I'll tell you what Frank does. When we're out on the walk every morning, just before eight o'clock, my phone goes bing, 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 bing. And it's Frank sending dozens of these funny videos. And some of them are really funny. So I found that that's kept me going for a part of the day. Well, it tells you how bored I am to be doing that. But no, I live in the country. I'm doing the same thing. You know, we, we've got some nice walks around here. So we, you know, I do the same thing, take the dog for a walk. And it's right what you say, Alistair. All the things that, you know, I've noticed over the years where I live that, the, that there's been a decline of birds and so forth, but you can hear them now. And it's, you know, it seems much clearer. You see, you know, it's just that from that respect, point of view, it's great, but obviously it's, it's, it's a serious effect on the economy and on people's livelihoods. So, uh, yeah. No, you can't I, win. I, I mean, I'm, it, it, yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky in lots of ways. One, as I say, I actually like you know, being with Fiona a lot of the time. Secondly, is that, you know, my work, a lot of my work is about words and I can do them anywhere. And, you know, I've, and I've, we've got a nice place to live. I mean, I cannot imagine what it is like at the moment if you're in a relationship where you're not very happy, yeah. with kids that you're not close to, uh, where you've got very, very confined space and no access to really nice scenery. Uh, I think that would be horrific. How do you think the uh, the current government are, are, are dealing with everything? Have they, have they been quick enough for you? Is there, is there things that you've looked at and you've thought to yourself, Oof, we, should, we, should have, we should have done this or we should have done that? Or are you quite happy with how everything's uh, gone along? No, I mean, I'm, I've, I've tried to be reasonable. And I'm, try, I'm still trying to be reasonable, but I actually think they've handled it very, very badly. Um, it was obvious that this was going to be serious fairly early on, and you could see that from the reaction of some of the other countries. And it's all very well, as Trump does, to kind of blame the Chinese. We didn't know this. We didn't know that. The scientific community were warning about this right from the word go. Mm. And then things like, you know, one minute, it's great. Yeah, it's fine. You can go to the Cheltenham and hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of people can mingle. Four days later, with grim face, they're telling us that nobody can, you know, go out in a crowd. So I think the mixed messaging has been bad. I think this issue of testing, I think the public, simply cannot understand how it is, and they haven't properly explained it yet, how it is that the Germans and the Koreans have been able to get levels of testing of frontline staff and of patients when we're so far behind. And all we keep getting are these promises of more and more tests when they haven't met the previous promises. Now, I don't underestimate how hard it is, and I've been there when, you know, in the middle of really difficult crises, nothing as big as this, because this is, this is global. And it's kind of, it covers everything, as Frank said. But there are certain principles of crisis management that you have to stick to. One of them is you've got to be clear about strategy and you've got to be clear about messaging. And I don't believe they've been clear about either. This is probably the worst crisis since probably the Second World War, for, certainly for this country and, and probably the world. First of all, how, how heavily do they have, do the government, and you, you've been there at the point of all this, how heavily do you, do you rely on your advisors? in this case being the health and sciences, how heavily do you rely on them? And is that information really accurate? Because we've seen things in the past where governments have acted upon information, which has been inaccurate. You know, there's these different schools of thought how this 
epidemic should be handled. I mean, you look what's going on in Sweden at the moment. They're quite a sophisticated country and they're allowing their population to still mix, to still go to restaurants and so forth. What is the difference? Why is it different from us to them? Why would you think that difference is there? Yeah, or you could also argue, why is it different for the French, where they went very, very early for a very, very heavy lockdown? Why is it different for the Chinese, where they didn't just go down for a lockdown, but they went for a lockdown where they were tracking everybody's movements the whole time? So people, yes, governments can make different decisions. And there's two things I'd say about your question about, yes, you listen, you should listen to good advice, but ultimately, the big decisions have got to be made by the politicians. Um, and that's in, in, in a major crisis. That principally means the prime minister and those ministers that are directly responsible. And if you just wind back a bit, and so much is happening so quickly, I think we just move on to the next thing so fast. You wind back a couple of weeks. And now they've now denied this was the strategy, but it appeared to be the strategy to let this virus take its course and to develop what they were calling herd immunity. Mm-hmm. Virtually every other country in the world was saying that is madness. That is tantamount to, you know, basically killing large numbers of your population. They wound back from that. But they wound back from that in a way that said, well, that wasn't really our strategy. This is now our strategy. So now the strategy is what you see right across the the lectern at those briefings, you know, stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. Now, that was not the strategy initially. Yet... What they say in every single briefing is we're following all the time the medical advice. We're following all the time the scientific advice. In my view, if you're saying that, you should, you should share that with the public as you're saying it. Now, one of the, the things, you know, when you mentioned about, you know, previous governments that have relied on information that didn't turn out to be, you know, wholly accurate, you probably got Iraq in mind. Mm. That was a situation where, yeah. obviously, we listened to the intelligence services, but ultimately the Prime Minister and the Cabinet had to make a judgment about what to do with that. Likewise here, I mean, I'll give you a classic example. I heard Grant Shapps, the Transport Secretary, the other day, and he was being asked why it was that people were coming from all over the world still through the, the major airports in the UK, and there was no testing, and there was no information being given as to what they should do when they arrived. Mm-hmm. And he said... We're following the scientific advice. Well, you show me that there will not be a piece of... Because that's not a scientific issue. That's a judgment about what you do at an airport. Mm -hmm. So, and if you go back again, when I mentioned Cheltenham, they said at the time, the scientific advice is that these crowds will not be spreading it in the way that it's being suggested. And now they're saying... In fact, that was, well, they're not saying it was wrong. They're just saying now don't have crowns. And today, lo and behold, you see the headlines in the papers, Cheltenham helped spread the virus around the whole country. So if you say you're going to listen to the experts and listen to the science, and that's what they keep saying. And by the way, it's perfectly legitimate, as Trump has done quite a lot, although I can't stand the guy, to say, right, well, you give me the advice, but ultimately I'm the guy who's been elected to make the decisions. I'll make the decisions. That's a fair enough thing to do. What I can't stand is what our lot are doing, which is basically saying we're following the advice, but that can't be true when, the, when they've done contradictory things within a week of each other. It's true. There is contradictions there, aren't there? And, and it is confusing message being sent out to the public. You just wonder, I mean, would you think there'd be infighting amongst the health advisors? Do you think they would all be on one page or 
would there be disagreements between those people? Oh yeah, there'll, there'll be there'll be argument, and and I don't mean that I don't mean argument in a bad way. I mean you know genuine debate and discussion. That's why, by the way, I think that it's a real shame that Parliament has been shut down because what you've there's found, no debate. Well, there's no real proper scrutiny. I mean, these briefings, I've written a couple of pieces for the article website about these briefings, the press briefings. I'm sorry, the media aren't really doing their job properly because they're, they're basically, it's about, you know, getting themselves, getting their question on the news. It's about following the agenda of their paper. And yesterday, to be fair to him, Hancock did take follow-up questions. But prior to that, they've not even been able to ask a follow-up question. So the rigour of the scrutiny is nothing like you get when MPs are kind of, you know, question after question, really pressing. I understand why you can't have Parliament rammed to the rafters with 650 MPs, but these, you've got to have a situation in a democracy when such big decisions are being taken where they can be properly questioned and properly scrutinised. And at the moment, I'm afraid, I, I, I just don't feel that's happening. Um, Alistair? Obviously, we're going to talk about your journey to becoming press secretary, if we, if we may. But I want to start uh, by talking about being a roulette dealer on Shaftesbury <laughs> Avenue. <laughs> Let's get to there, shall we? How did, how did that come about? Uh, do you know what? I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. I came, <laughs> I came out of university and I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. When I was at university, I used to go away all the time on, and busking because that was a way to make you know, decent money. And particularly on the continent, I made a lot of money. When I say a lot, you know, I made decent money. Yeah. And so I had my bagpipes. I was, just, I was just sort of bumming around trying to work out what I wanted to do. And I saw an advert in the, in the evening stand. I was sitting on the tube and I saw an advert. I was actually on my way to Holland, I think, on a busking trip. And I saw this advert for roulette dealers. Oh, I'll apply for that. So I went along and, it's, and I trained. It's actually the only time in my life I've been sacked. Um, <laughs> and the guy, the guy told me, uh, years later... I met somebody who worked at the casino um, and he, I'd never worked, they never told me why I was sad. They just basically said, look, you know, we don't think it's going to work here. And I thought I was a perfectly good roulette dealer, but they felt that I think, I think they felt I was being too gen- too nice to the punters. Ah, right. <laughs> I was sort of warning them off a bit. The ones who were getting a bit silly, you know. Do, do you think you've taken another direction? You may wind up working in Vegas. Do you know what? I've never been there. Rory, my son, who you've met, Frank, he goes there a fair bit because he likes... He, do you know something weird? I've never put a bet on in my life. Oh, I've never had a bet? Oh, I've yeah. never had a bet. Oh. I'm, just, I'm just not a kind of... I've never done it. And yet I worked in a casino. My dad was a bookmaker and uh, I sort of grew up in that yeah. arena of gambling and so forth. And for me, I'm, I've got quite an addictive personality and I, I, so I've I. got quite... In gambling, it's not a good thing to do. No, you see, you I, I, do you know what? I've, I've never gambled and I've never taken drugs. And I think both of it is because I know that I've got an addictive personality. Yeah. Um, and I've had different addictions at different points. Some of them, you know, I think work, exercise now, alcohol at one point. Uh, but my son, Rory, who, I mean, that's his business. He's, he's in sports data, analytics, and a lot of that is about, you know, using what information he develops and gets to, to place very, very big bets. And, you know, that's, yeah. that's his business. Yeah. yeah. Alistair, when do you, you realise that you've got an addictive personality? I know that you just brought up alcoholism there. At what point do you think in your head, right, I've got a problem with it? I didn't think I had a problem on that front until I was in hospital. Right. Um, because 
I think a lot of people, when they get into problems with alcohol, and I'm sure it's the same with drugs, is that you don't, even though your rational mind knows that you're doing something that is damaging you, mm. you always find a way of, of explaining it to yourself as being, as being fine. So, it, so for me, it was like I, just, I, I was living, working too hard, not taking care of relationships, drinking too much, smoking a lot, not healthy, not keeping fit. And the pressure and the whole thing just came. And, and I, you know, I literally, I had a psychotic breakdown in the middle of, um, in a public place in Scotland. Got arrested, taken to hospital. And even then I wouldn't have said to you that I recognised I had an addictive personality. I think it's taken me a long time to get to that, where I yeah. recognise it. And, I, and, I, and, and even now, for example, in this kind of coronavirus, I mean, Fiona, who obviously knows me better than anybody, I can tell that at the moment she's just a little bit anxious that I'm getting a bit kind of hyper about certain things. Mm. And that's, so like, you know, I am working incredibly, I mean, I don't mean working hard, but I'm, I'm flat out at the moment in my own way in the house. Mm. So that's a kind of, that's an addictive streak that's, you know, why can't I sleep? I can't sleep because, because my, my head is full of stuff and then I'm getting up <laughs> in the middle of the night to kind of satisfy it. And that, and that means, you know, like I'm literally getting up at four o'clock to write a, write an article about Matt Hancock. I mean, you know, what's the <laughs> point of that? <laughs> but it's right. You've got to get it out of your system. That's, I, I do that. I'm in bed, then I'm sort of waking up and writing something down so I don't forget about it. And mm. it's something I'm writing down, really, I should forget about because it's just going to give me aggravation in the morning. Yeah. I it's a strange, strange thing, isn't it? And we, I think, I don't know, sometimes if you're a driven person, that's how it is. You, you just cannot relax. You cannot switch off you just your mind's constantly you know doing 100 miles an hour on you know what's next what am i going to say you know from your case you know what article you're going to write with me it's you know what am i going to do for a fight what am i how am i going to control this situation yeah. it's very very difficult very difficult to switch off mm. you know when new labor you, and you you invented the phrase new, new labor didn't you and when tony got elected and you came in and that was uh again that was a blaze of glory wasn't it and great you know, certainly for the younger generation you know they felt it was a new broom which it was and it, and it was a new new age and a new dawning of uh, of, of labor a, a totally different labor as as the traditional party was working all the way through that and then coming to a stage where where the iraq war did start and you were obviously working quietly with with our allies in america when you was with george bush how did you find him is the sort of the general view of him that he's this sort of lucky guy with born a spoon in his mouth is, is not quite bright. Is that, is that how you would look at him? How would you see George Bush uh, Jr.? Well, he was, <clears throat> I mean, he was to some extent born with a, a silver spoon in his mouth. He came from a pretty well-off family that, you know, he, his dad had been senior positions in various arms of the, of the government, including the very, very top. But I found him very different to the public image. I'm not going to pretend that he's got, you know, the brain of an Einstein, but he's a lot smarter than people think. I don't think you get to be, well, I was going to say you don't get to be president, but then you look at the current guy. But <laughs> I think that he, he's a lot smarter than people think. He's got, do you know what's really interesting about George Bush? That, that most people in politics, because the public facing bit of it now is so all pervasive. You know, when, when Churchill was, 
leading the, the Britain during the Second World War, he didn't have to do briefings every day. He didn't have to kind of, you know, worry about people were saying on Twitter. He didn't have to worry about 24-7 news because none of that stuff existed. Mm. Now, there's a, the public-facing part of the job is, is much more demanding. And that is one of the reasons why people are always saying, right, the leader has to be charismatic. The leader has to be able to kind of communicate directly to the people, all this stuff that gets said about leaders. But I would say the thing about Bush, rarely for a modern leader, he was actually much more interesting and much better as a communicator in private than he was with the cameras on him. He didn't like the media. I think it's interesting that he's almost vanished in terms of his public profile now. He's not like Clinton's yeah. still around and Jimmy Carter's still around, Tony's still around, Obama's still around, Gordon Brown's still around. Bush has pretty much disappeared. He, he does lots of, you know, I'm sure he makes money doing stuff. He does lots of charitable stuff. He paints, he's become a quite a good painter, you know, he paints a lot. And really? so he was somebody, I'll tell you the other thing that I, that I, I liked about, about Bush is that when, you know, in the end, you do have to make judgments about people. I didn't like some of the people around him. I thought Cheney was a pretty scary guy. I thought Rumsfeld was an ideologue. Um, but the thing I'd say about Bush, when you were with him, you were conscious of there being a humanity that was there. With, with some politicians, you're not. And so when you're going around the place, the guy who was holding the door open, he would know his name and he'd know that his son was 18 and he had a driving test last week. And he'd ask him how he went, got his son got in his driving test. He just had that sort of personal touch, which, again, when you saw him on the campaign trail, he wasn't like that at all. He was very stiff and very wooden, yeah, saying the yeah. wrong thing. So it's interesting. He's a, he's a look. Iraq was a was a, obviously a very difficult period, and I think you know there's no doubt we got a lot of a lot of political grief because of this sense that we were doing it because the Americans wanted us to do it. That wasn't the reason we were doing it. But you know, the, if it had been Obama, if it had been Clinton, it would have been easier. How do you look back at that time? Now, Alistair, do you, do you look back at it with any regret or not? Do you mean that period particularly? Yeah. Uh, after I left number 10. It's, I mean, it's 17 years, you know, since I've left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's still every single day, there is not just one person, but several people, and literally every single day, will be on social media saying I'm a war criminal, got killed a million people, got blood on my hands, blah, blah, blah. Now... You get used to that, and that's fine. But what's interesting is I remember when I left, a guy called Jamie Rubin, who was, he was kind of my, one of my oppos in America. He was Madeleine Albright's spokesman. And he'd left. We became very close friends during the Kosovo conflict. And he'd already left. And he said to me, he said, one of the hardest things you're going to find is working out what you really think again. And I didn't, at the time, I didn't really know what he meant by that. But mm. subsequently, I, I, what happens is you train yourself. So when I was working for Tony, there was things I disagreed about and things I was less enamored of than other things. But basically, my job was to be, if you like, a part of his mind. I had to subsume myself in him. Yeah. That's why I think this Dominic Cummings guy is a problem for Boris Johnson, because I think Cummings has got his own agenda. I didn't have my own agenda. I had a job which was to help Tony Blair win elections and then stay there and govern well. That was my job. So when I came out, 
it took me ages. So when you, even now, when you ask me that question, how do you feel looking back at that time? It's a complicated answer. Mm. A part of me feels that we're, you know, that the abuse is unfair. A part of me thinks that I've been the subject, I think, of half a dozen inquiries. I've been cleared by them all, but they still bang on about it. A part of me thinks that Tony Blair was one of the best prime ministers we've ever had. And because of Iraq, people don't see that maybe as clearly as I do. But then another part of me thinks, well, yeah, but, you know, were we doing it because the Americans wanted us to do it? Did we really think through some of the consequences? So I can put myself back at that time and I can say I 100% defend what we did. But equally, I can, I can part myself now and I can still defend it. Mm. But I can also see why people, you know, took a different opinion. Going back to that time, Camp David, they're searching for bin Laden. There's Tony Blair's there. George Bush is there. What was the situation with bin Laden? Was it to capture him alive or was it to kill him? What was the mindset? Was it to bring him to justice or just knock him over? I don't remember a kind of you know, specific discussions about that. But I think that the... It's a very good question. I mean, I think the American mentality would have been kind of getting dead or alive. But I sus- And I also think that they would have been perhaps worried. You saw this with how quickly and how carefully they disposed of the body. I think the, the idea of there ever being uh, anything that allowed him genuinely to become a martyr with a shrine and all that sort of stuff. So I don't know is the honest answer, Frank. I don't know. I think that our instinct would be to say, you know, be better to get him alive. But then you think about the people who are actually out there on the front line at the point at which maybe they're going to find him, come across him, you know the circumstances, they're going to be at great risk. And so I think that's a, that's a tough one. I just felt that, you know, it was to, from an American point of view, it was to just, they didn't want him, as you say, to be a martyr. I, I think it was just to get rid of him, period, and that was it, which is what, mm. what they did. Yeah, there may be something in that. And, you know, the, 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 you know the, there's no doubt, we, we, could, we could feel those, you've got to remember, and I think we're seeing this much more now with Trump as president, I think often we like to think that, you know, we're very, very similar to America. And in some ways we are, but we're also very, very different. Mm. Do you think that our politicians on the right find it very hard, even if they believe it, to say that that you should bring back the death penalty? There, the politicians on the left find it very difficult to say that you should repeal the death penalty. Mm. They have a sense of their own military power that we, we have only insofar as it relates to history. We still, so we can rightly say, I think, that we have some of the best special forces in the world. I think every military in the world thinks that. But we can't say that we have the kind of depth of military that, you know, we did in the past. Mm. So we're, you know, we're, we're different. And I, so I think our instincts might have been different on that. Yeah. We're talking the last general election uh, just for some ridiculous and stupid reason, you were expelled from the party. And Jeremy Corbyn obviously proved to be a disaster for Labour. Um, mm. How did you feel about that at the time? And how did you feel about Jeremy Corbyn? And, and how did you feel about Keir to be the next uh, leader? Keir Starmer? Yeah. I mean, how I felt about 
being expelled. I mean, I just, to be absolutely, there's two things I thought. One, I thought it was a bit weird. And secondly, I thought it was stupid. But what it showed was that for a certain section of the party, which is which for the last few years has been in control of the party, it's quite hard when this dawns on you, but they probably hate us as much as, as me and Tony and people like us as much as they hate the Tories, if not more. Mm. And then what I hope, I hope that people understand. There was a, a Phil Wilson, who was a Labour MP for Sedgefield, who was Tony's successor in Sedgefield, who wrote a fantastic piece in the New Statesman this week, telling the truth about what the last four years have been like. You know, the last four years has been a complete disaster for the Labour Party. Mm-hmm. And to lose, I think Corbyn has to take some responsibility for the referendum. I think he definitely has to take responsibility for the fact that Labour was seen by millions of people as being unelectable. The 2017 election campaign, we lost it and they behaved as though we won it. And then the thing that I know, and here's the thing, Frank, you, you look, in the end, you're, you're in the game that is about winning and losing, and, and that's it, it's what, it's what the result yeah. is. If you go back, I'll tell you the results from the Labour perspective of the last 11 general elections, okay? Lost, 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 lost. Tony Blair, Tony Blair, Tony Blair. Lost, 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 lost. Wow. 11 elections, we've won three. They were won with Tony Blair as leader of the Labour Party. And who is the last person that they actually want to listen to in these circumstances? (laughs) Tony Blair. They've got this big team that's doing analysis of why they lost the last election, right? Well, I can guarantee they haven't asked me, they haven't asked Tony, they haven't asked Peter Mandelson, they haven't asked Gordon Brown. They haven't asked people who've actually been involved in winning elections. And this stuff that they say about, oh, it's because the media was so hard. And that... You know, go and talk to Neil Kinnock about the media being hard. Mm. Yeah. Really is it easy compared to how Neil had it? And not Michael Foote. But it so, become the nasty part. It become the nasty party, though. All those things are right, we said. And the other thing that I really, 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 you know, I really didn't understand and I found objectionable about Corbyn was the racism, the anti-Semitism. Mm. I did not, that was not dealt with. It rumbled on and on and on. He wouldn't even discuss it. No. And I found that, I found, how can that man be a leader leader of the party, let alone be leader of the country, when you're not dealing with racism, it within your own group. You're just polishing it over, mm. not just, mm. as if it's not happening, it's going to go away. And I, I just felt mm. that he was, uh, he was like an idealistic leader, but he wasn't a, he wasn't a proper leader. You know, an ideal world of, you know, your real left-wing, you know, socialist, he's probably your guy, but he did not deal with things that he should have dealt with. And I, and I thought that people were so concerned of him becoming prime minister, that they would rather vote Tory, than, and I'm talking about traditional Labour voters, yeah. as it turned out, certainly up north, than vote for him. And that's got to be an indictment against him and all those people who advised him in the party. Yeah. But you see, they, and what they will say to that is, oh, it wasn't about Corbyn, it was about Brexit. And it's nonsense. I mean, Brexit was an issue, no doubt about that. And, and Johnson cleverly played on the idea that people were sick to death of Brexit, get Brexit done. But the thing about, I mean, Phil Wilson says in this piece that what the the left of the Labour Party has has done all its life is actually kind of play the victim. And he makes the point, he says, if you don't want the media and your opponents to say that you're a friend of Middle Eastern terrorist organisations, don't call them your, your friend. 
<laughs> if you don't want to be accused yeah. of being close to the IRA, don't get close to the IRA. But what they do is they portray themselves. It's all about kind of virtue and their own moral certainty. And the other thing that really annoys me, like where I live in, in uh, the Hampstead area, and, and I read in this piece, Highgate, not far from here, mm. apparently 10% of the population of Highgate is a member of the Labour Party, right? That's fine. I've got, I think that's great, right? But Highgate is a very wealthy area. And yeah. as Phil pointed out, what you have there are people who are pretty well off, who, frankly, another Tory government is not going to destroy their lives. But up in parts of the northeast, where the majority of seats are now Tory, mm -hmm. then it is going to destroy their lives. And this kind of moral... And then for Corbyn to come out and say, we won the argument, I mean, it doesn't matter. One, it's not true. Yeah. It doesn't matter who won the argument. Did you win the election? No. Well, you, didn't win, you didn't win an argument or an election. All no. he managed to do was alienate, alienate traditional voters. <clears throat> That's what he did. And, you know, the Brexit thing... When they had the previous election, when Theresa May called the election, that's what got him in because he wasn't talking about Brexit. He was talking about what people wanted to hear at the time. Yeah. They were Brexit it out, I thought. You know, talking about health, schools, policing and so forth. And, and then he, he came out with giving the youngsters at university doing away with their, their loans and so forth. They're all the things people wanted to hear. But I yeah, think but you know what, Phil, Phil made a very interesting point. He said that in 2017... Labour did okay and people were prepared to tolerate voting Labour because nobody thought that Corbyn was going to win. In mm. 2019, they couldn't bear voting for him because they thought he might. Yeah. And, yeah, that's um, a really good point. I hope Keir will understand the, the depth of the problem the Labour Party's got. Mm -hmm. I think he does. But I've been slightly alarmed during the leadership election. I understand why he's done it, because, you know, he has to win. And I believe in winning, and I think you've got to kind of win on the field that you've got. And the electorate in this election is the party membership. Now, a lot of them continue to think that Jeremy Corbyn walks on water. Therefore, Keir can't necessarily go around and say, as I have said, the last four years have been a complete disaster for Labour. Mm. But I hope, what, what I hope he doesn't do is to think that if somehow we can sort of calibrate between people like me on the kind of new Labour end of the market and the Corbynistas on the other end and sort of get a bit of a messy compromise in the middle, I think he's got to set out clear positions and go for them. I also think we've got to move away from this idea, and this is particularly relevant now with coronavirus and the fact that, you know, the economy is going to go into a completely different state that the whole th argument is just about how much you tax to how much you spend to how much you nationalise. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to have a completely different argument about the future. One thing I hope he does as well is I think he should put himself right at the centre of the climate change debate because I think ultimately that is what the big existential challenge we face. And I don't know, I mean, I know Keir really well, he's my MP, I like him, but you'll have seen this in your game, Frank, that sometimes... You don't know whether people are the kind of top, top level yeah. until they get there. Until they, yeah, yeah.
exactly. And that's, that's a fact of life. And he's got the, a stand the, 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 tragi- the tragedy because- about Jeremy Corbyn, though, is that people did know. Mm. People knew yeah. that if he was elected leader of the Labour Party, he was never going to win. I think, you know, whatever way you, however you feel about Boris, at the end of the day, once he became leader, he did put his mark down. I mean, he absolutely, you know, cut people off, you know, threw people out the party and so forth if they yeah. didn't support him. I mean, he stamped his mark, and I think that's exactly what Starmer's got to do. Yeah. Well, you see, the thing about the, 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 thing about the Tories is that, I mean, here's a little fact for you. about this. This will shock you, right? If I... I'll ask you as a quiz question. <laughs> How many prime ministers in history have come from A, the Labour Party, and B, Eton School? You're gonna say you're gonna say something like all of them for Eton School, aren't you? No, no, because seven have come from the Labour Party. Yeah. You've had seven Labour Prime Ministers seven. in history. Yeah. You've had twenty-one old Etonian prime ministers. Wow. So oh, wow. My point is, and, and none of them have been Labour, we can be sure of that. <laughs> now, the point I'm making, the point I'm making is the Tories are absolutely ruthless about power in a way that we were when we were there, not in a bad way. There's nothing wrong with wanting power because that's how you make change. But you just look at what's happened in the last few years. Boris Johnson, he was disloyal to David Cameron. He was disloyal to Theresa May. Uh, he was once sacked by Michael Howard, right? But come the last election, and when he got his Brexit deal, right, they all backed him. Mm-hmm. They all backed him. They all came out and said, yep, yeah, you're the man. Because they always realise the, the other choice is, is Labour. No power, exactly. Alistair, how, how are you dealing without football? Obviously, Frank's a big Arsenal guy. You're a big Burnley guy. How are you dealing with it through this uh, time where there's uh, no live football to get stuck into? I'm finding it very difficult, to be honest. Uh, I think that the thing about football for me is it, it's, uh, it's part of the rhythm of the week. I think the great thing about football is that there's always something to look forward to. It's the next match. It's the next yeah. season. It's the next cup run. It's yeah. the next draw. It's the next, you know... and. I mean, I've been to football with Frank. I think you're similar to me in this, Frank. It's about, for me, it's about the moment. I love being in the moment, but it's also about that sense yeah. of it's the next thing and the next. Whereas it's, 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 it's the hope, isn't it? It's the hope, hoping your team, you know, if they yeah. don't do it this game, they'll do it the next game. I mean, exactly. And it's knowing on, that, you know, the good, like if you followed Arsenal, right? And it makes me, I live quite near, you know, I live in Gospel Oak and lots of Arsenal fans. Yeah. I love the fact they're all. You know, it's so terrible when you're not winning trophies and blah, blah, blah. You try going to the bottom of the fourth division and having to beat Leighton Orient to stay in the league. Right? <laughs> so if you, support, if you support a proper club like Burnley, or I'm not going to say Blackburn, forget it. If you support a proper club like Burnley or Hartlepool or Rochdale or, you know, clubs that have been up and down a bit, I think you enjoy it more. Yeah, and particularly now. I mean, we, we, you know, the run that we're on at the moment is just ridiculous. It's been fantastic. So, the other thing that I've missed is um, I find with, with what the foot, football is. I live in London, so home game is like all day. Yeah. Fiona doesn't like football; she never goes to it. That's fine. But so I've got this whole different life up there, different friends, different memories, and so it's a social life. It's a it's a cultural life, and it's a sporting life. And yeah, it's it's hard and. And I, and I don't care what anybody says, putting old games on the telly, it doesn't quite do it for me. 
No, no. no. Sport, you have to watch live. Yeah. That's what it's all about. That's, that's what it is. It's the live been, mind you, been, I've seen some great documentaries in lockdown. I watched a fantastic documentary about the Lisbon Lions the other day. So I've seen it. In the, yeah, do you know the story about the false teeth? Yeah. <laughs> so Ronnie, Ronnie Simpson, the goalkeeper, he had a cap in the goal mouth in case he got too sunny. And he had four of the players' false teeth in there. And at the end of at the end of the match, you can see them all racing because the pitch, the crowd invaded the pitch. They're all racing to get their teeth out of out of his cap. And Bertie Ald, Bertie Ald is sitting there, says, "How did you know whose teeth was whose teeth? Which is my teeth? Which is his teeth?" <laughs> they used to use them in the clubhouse to do the edges of the pie crust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so you do your podcast as well, Alistair, don't you? You've got a couple on the go. You do one with your daughter, Grace. Yeah, do you enjoy that? Grace is, I enjoy that. You should come on that, Frank, because part of what she does is yeah. she she likes to challenge people like you and me that are a bit kind of, you know, a bit sort of alpha male. And um, <laughs> no, it's been good. It's we, it's called Football, Feminism and Everything in Between. So we, we talk about football, we talk about feminism, we talk about everything in between. And we've had people, the gaffer's been on, Sean Dyche, we've had... Um, we had Jamie Carragher on, uh, Joey Barton's been on, but we've also done, you know, Julia Gillard, the Australian Prime Minister. We've got a real nice sort of mix. I think the old podcasts at the moment are good, you know, they're good to listen to, you know, something different with people while there's not a lot going on. I'm, I'm sort of enjoying quite a few of the ones I've been listening to. What do you listen to? I've been listening, I've obviously listened to a lot of the boxing ones. I've been listening to some of the comedy ones. I like, I like and I love the cinema, so I've been listening to a Kermode's one. Oh, yeah. quite a good podcast, you know. Um, so there, there's been some good, there's been some good stuff on, and I like, and I thought I've been listening to a lot is the old Radio Four Extra, right? Some good old comedy, some good old yeah, comedy yeah, yeah. programs on there. Yeah, yeah. Some good series. So, yeah, yeah, so it's all, you know, you've, you've got to make your own entertainment, haven't you? Or look for some yeah. points of entertainment. Yeah, uh, it's all good. You do, Alistair. Just just to finish off, obviously you're an ambassador uh, for the mental health charity Time for Change. These are again unprecedented times for a lot of people. A lot of people with anxieties and and various uh, modes of depression will be will be suffering at this time. What advice could you give to people that are that are listening to this that are maybe struggling, uh, being locked up at the moment? Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting this because I read a piece the other day from somebody who has um, who's who has schizophrenia, and she was saying that what's been interesting about this period is that she gets the sense that people who don't normally have mental health problems are starting to maybe just understand a bit better what it, what it might be like. Mm. And that at the moment, everybody's feeling a bit anxious. It's impossible not to feel a little bit anxious about what's, what's happening. Yeah. And at the moment, actually, I said you right at the start, I've actually been feeling psychologically, I've been feeling in really good nick recently. Um, but I know it can, it can change very, very quickly. I wrote a blog about this on my website the other day, which had huge... Um, response because i think it is if you've been through the sorts of stuff that i've been through with depression then you do learn things from it and I, and I do put it out there so my if i can remember them my tips were try to stay active the worst thing about depression and this is this is exacerbated now when we have to spend so much time indoors yeah. is you can persuade yourself you've got an excuse not to do anything so you can literally just sort of sit there and do nothing and stare at the wall so try to be active if that's you know Exercise, I think, is massively important. It can be reading, it can be writing, it can be doing stuff that you you didn't, you know, like cleaning out the cupboard. It can be anything. So stay active. 
exercise is incredibly important. I think you've got to exercise and stay, to stay mentally fit. You've got to be physically fit. I think diet is incredibly important. Sleep is really important. I struggle with my sleep and sometimes and get really bad insomnia. And but if I, when I when I'm sleeping well, I'm, I know I'm, you know, I'll be psychologically well. Mm-hmm. And then I think the other thing is uh, kind of related to that. I think is really just to keep your mind. Marilyn Monroe had this great phrase, "Think in ink," and. Mm-hmm. What that says to me is, okay, it might be obvious for somebody like me because I'm a, you know, I write books and stuff, but thinking ink to me, why do people make lists? People make lists because actually you can think in ink. And I think we can apply this at a time like this. I think actually just sitting and writing down your thoughts about why are you anxious? What is it that make, that's making you anxious? Try and, and, and it helps you just get things back into perspective. I think key relationships is the most important thing of all. Look after your key relationships. I think I found I've deliberately every day since this thing started, I've been thinking of somebody that I've lost touch with. Yeah. And I've just been getting in touch with them. Maybe somebody I've not spoken to for two or three years, or maybe even somebody I've not spoken to for 20 years. That's a great point. Just get in touch with them. I think every day try to do something to help somebody else. And I think another big one for me is try to get good out of a bad situation. So this is like, we're all feeling a bit, this is crap. Yeah. Well, you know, Frank and I both mentioned the bird song, right? That to me is finding something good out of a bad situation. We're all starting to focus, maybe just think a little bit more about what really matters in life. Um, I do think this, by the way, could be, it might be the thing that does change the whole debate on climate change. Yeah. I don't know. So try to think of, of, of getting the good out of the bad. And I think the most important thing that I learned from having been through crises in government myself, was you've got to hold on to the fact that it is going to end. All crises end in the end. They might end, this one's going to end very badly for a lot of people, with a lot of death, a lot of grief, a lot of suffering, but it is going to end and most of us will still be there. The world will still be there. And I think holding on to that, and as Frank said earlier, you know, even if he can't get a fight, he's got to think about, well, What's the next one going to be? When is it going to be? How am I going to, how am I going to make it different? How am I going to make it part of the world coming back out of this nightmare? And the, the other thing I'd say, read books, not newspapers, and listen to, listen to music, not the news. There you go. Nailed it. Yeah. And podcasts, of course. <laughs> and this podcast. Yeah, the Frank Warren podcast, definitely, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> it's been an awesome guest, a tremendous guest. I'm sure Frank agrees. Really, really great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Enjoyed it. It's re- really kind of you and a great privilege. Thank you, Alistair. Brilliant. I'll see you soon. Take care. Thanks, mate. All the best. There you go. Not bad for a Burnley fan. Fantastic conversation with Alistair Campbell. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Write us a five-star review. It'll help us with our visibility in the iTunes chart so more people can come and enjoy all these fantastic interviews that Frank is doing with some of the biggest names in sport, politics, and the world of entertainment. And there's more to come in the not-too-distant future. So like I said, hit subscribe so you never miss out.